Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. The PowerCast is a bi-weekly audio program for those interested in the top conservative insight and analysis of energy, climate, and environmental issues. My name is Darren Bax, and I'm Senior Research Fellow of Environmental Policy and Regulation in the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment. Everybody wants clean air, clean water, and a clean environment in general. Nobody and no party has a monopoly on caring about the environment. But there are certainly differences in how we would achieve successful environmental outcomes. In the 1970s, when Congress passed the landmark environmental statutes like the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, legislators envisioned that states would play the leading role in protecting the environment. However, as we've seen over the last 50 years, this respect for federalism in the environmental context has significantly diminished. Many on the left and others embrace increasing federal top-down government and reject the notion that states and certainly private parties as being more important for addressing environmental issues. Today, to discuss the flaws of this heavy-handed federal approach and to highlight the critical importance of local and private solutions for the environment, I'm joined by Todd Myers, who's Environmental Director at the Washington Policy Center in Seattle and author of the new book entitled Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problems. Todd, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on. I, it's good to work with you. I've known you since you were working in state uh, politics a long time ago. And I, what I particularly appreciate about the approach that you guys have is, one, fighting back on bad environmental policy, of which there's a lot, but making the point that you just made, which is, is that conservatives uh, care very much about good stewardship. They just want to do it in, in a right way that's effective. Absolutely. And uh, I hate to say how long we've known each other, because yeah. <laughs> uh, so I won't. Um, so, so I want to start off with some data, which is always, I'm sure, exciting for the listeners. But I think this is interesting data. From 1980 to 2021, concentration levels, so I'm not talking about emissions, I'm talking about the actual concentrations in the air, for carbon monoxide declined by 87%, lead by 98%. Nitrogen dioxide by 67%, ground level ozone by 29%, and sulfur dioxide by 94%. Fine particulate matter, known as PM 2.5, from 2000 to 2021, declined by 37%. The U.S. has a much cleaner environment, especially in the air context. So, Todd, could you expand on how yesterday's environmental problems are not the same as today's? Yeah, so... I think the reason that people typically go to sort of the 1970s approach is for the statistics that you just cited, which is is that the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, for all of their flaws, actually did make the air cleaner and the water cleaner. And it's particularly because government is suited toward the type of problem that they faced in the 1970s. Big smokestacks, big outfalls, right? Everybody thinks of the Cuyahoga River catching on fire. Um, so if you say here are a limited number of very large sources 
Government can address those. What government has a hard time addressing is distributed sources, um, lots of little inputs, or you know how energy is used in lots of ways. And this is not just me. The person who says that is Bill Ruckelshaus, the first director of EPA, who uh, in many ways was in charge of um, sort of uh, helping facilitate and, and um, administer the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act. He wrote a piece about 10 years ago saying that the types of problems we faced in the 1970s are very different than what we face today. And so the 1970s solutions aren't going to be effective today. And I think that's critical, especially coming from a guy like Bill Ruckelshaus. So in the case of water quality, I sit on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council in Washington State where we're trying to help um, populations of salmon increase. And the types of pollution we see in Puget Sound is more related to little bits of brake dust, little bits of tire rubber, um, you know, little bits of runoff from, from lawns and things like that. How you address that is very different. You can't do a top-down approach. Top-down approaches just don't work for those types of pollutions. Distributed, market-based, bottom-up approaches are the ways that you address that and especially now with the ability to align people's financial incentives with environmental outcomes. We need to have a big mind shift about how we address these things and get out of the 1970s. So having said that, why do you think there's a resistance to recognizing how times have changed and solutions need to reflect that change? I think it is a false hope. Um, a false hope that what worked in the 1970s can work again today because um, there is just the hope that if we pass a law, it will happen. Um, but I can tell you, having worked in environmental policy for 20 years in Washington State, one of the bluest of blue states where environmentalism is, you know, uh, very popular, that that's simply not the case. Um, a lot of the federal policies, especially Endangered Species Act, have not yielded the results um, that they were promised. Um, a lot of countries that signed the Paris Climate Accords to reduce CO2 emissions, who lecture us about how bad we are, um, have not even put in place plans to meet the, the targets that they say that they want to meet, let alone actually implemented those plans or met the goals. Um, so I think that there is a desire for a silver bullet, for a simple solution that's simply passing the law. And I think there's a lot of hubris, right? An assumption that we know what we're doing, um, and if we just did it my way, it would work. And time and again, we find that's simply not the case. So your last point, I think, kind of connects to my... Next question, and I think across the board, there's an all too common underlying assumption that if someone doesn't push a federal solution right. to an alleged environmental problem, then that person doesn't care about the environment. And, and take the question of waters uh, that the EPA and CORE can regulate under the Clean Water Act, and mm -hmm. people may know this as kind of the, the language being waters in the United States. If one dares argue for a narrow, a narrow definition or a narrower definition, then you know, the argument would be, oh, you're just in favor of dirty water. And while I think this, you know, pro-federal bias is more common to left, I don't think it's exclusively on the left. I guess my question is, why is there, why do we have this pro-federal solution bias? Is it you just connect again back to just what, look, what happened in the 1970s? But, but what's interesting, though, is in the 1970s, you know, Congress envisioned states playing a leading role. And maybe it's just, I don't know, I'm just... What do you think? <laughs> I'm at a loss. There, there's a lot in that question. I think part there's a variety of things. One is is that the federal government obviously um, uh, 
politicians want to take credit, right? They want to show, look what a good thing I'm doing for the environment. Um, you talk, I mean, part of the problem about the way we do environmental policy is that we measure inputs, not outputs. So there was a bunch of stories this summer about when they passed the giant climate spending bill. And I would see all these editorials that say, oh, look how great this is. Look how much money they're spending. It's like, <laughs> okay, but are they actually going to achieve the goal? That's the real question. In many cases, um, they don't. Um, so if politicians can take the credit um, but not have responsibility for implementation, that's, that's even better. But really where you see the best environmental solutions for water quality, for other things like that, are from the people on the ground. Right? If you want to know how to reduce you know, agricultural runoff or something like that, the farmers are the ones who know, um, and they are the ones who are using technologies to reduce the amount of energy that they put into the soil because they don't want to have to pay for it. Uh, if you're saying, okay, EPA or uh, other folks, you know, force farmers to do that, the ways that they're going to do are very bureaucratic, very expensive, and often not very effective. So my next question is, are federal solutions, at least the ones that we're hearing about now and the ones that are being promulgated now by the agencies, are they even achieving their environmental goals? Um, some are, as we just talked about, but the types of problems that we face today are not really suited to federal. I mean, in many cases, are not even suited to state. They're, su they're suited to local. And I'll give you a good example, the Endangered Species Act. So the Endangered Species Act um, was designed to protect habitat for um, animals listed as threatened and endangered. But the fundamental problem that it had is, is that it made habitat and species a liability rather than an asset. So if you have good habitat, you are punished for having good habitat. And what we see time and again, um, as you know, and you have talked about, is that when a species is listed, often you see the amount of habitat decline because landowners are quickly getting rid of what they see as a, as a liability. I'll just give you a story from my book about how we can change that. So in the Central Valley of California, um, they wanted to find a way to protect habitat for migratory seabirds. And so using data from bird watchers that they had entered into an app called eBird, um, they were able to see exactly where migratory seabirds were flying um, the Nature Conservancy used the data from Cornell University to go to rice farmers and say, how much would we have to pay you to flood your field during migratory seabird season? They came up with a price. They paid the farmers. It was good for the farmers. They flooded their fields. They could tell that the birds were using it. And it turned habitat into an asset rather than a liability. That sort of data and information is something we've only had access to for about a decade now. But it turns the Endangered Species Act on its head. Rather than making the species we want to protect an, a liability, it makes them an asset. And that is the change that we need to make, and that's what my book is about. And, and speaking about your book, so as, so as going through it, you, you talk about environmentalism having become a centerpiece of the less view of intersectionality. What do you mean by that? So I work with a lot of people on the environmental left, a lot of people who are very sincere. The foreword to my book is written by um, a woman who works for a group called Wild Labs, which is part of the World Wildlife Fund. Um, on a lot of issues, I think she, she and I probably wouldn't agree, but she is very sincere in her desire to do environmental protection. But so much of what gets attention are sort of political environmentalists on the left. And for those 
uh, for political environmentalists, they often see the environment as a tool to achieve other goals, which is why I think conservatives like you and I um, often recoil at environmental policy because it seems like a Trojan horse for socialism. And guess what? Sometimes it is. Um, and so when you see the environment as just, you know, one aspect of a larger um, um, sort of left-wing agenda, it not only devalues environmental results, it makes environmental policy hyper-political, which is undermines our ability to do effective things. And so I think it is really counterproductive to achieving environmental outcomes um, that, as you said, I think, you know, a lot of us want. I mean, we're seeing these types of problems just in the inflation, so-called Inflation Reduction Act and right. other legislation where goals relating more about labor and right. social justice seem to really be as important, if not more important, than even the environmental outcomes. In fact, some of those goals, these other goals, may even work um, counter to the objectives, the environmental goals that they would have. So. Yeah. The, the example that I always like to give, just because it's very straightforward, in the climate legislation was um, that uh, you get a $1 subsidy for renewable energy. But if that project is made with union labor and a variety of other union things, uh, you get $5. So what's the priority? Is the priority reducing the risk of what they call the existential crisis or supporting political allies. And I think if, when you look at things like that, you say, oh, okay, I see that, <laughs> that the environment, rather than sort of standing on its own and wanting to address the problem, um, is being used as a political tool, which again, makes it difficult for people across the political spectrum to take the environment seriously as an issue and find problems, which is, which is why, I mean, what my book fundamentally is about is taking power out of the hands of politicians and putting it into the hands of people, because that's a much more effective way to solve those environmental challenges. So before we kind of get into the details of <clears throat> the people and, the, and private solutions, I want to just ask a question on state solutions. And this kind of gets back to kind of the question I'd had before, but it's a little bit different. In my experience, there seems to be a significant amount of disrespect for states in the environmental area. It's not just about being pro-federal. It's actually being kind of anti-state. I mean, they just kind of this feeling that states won't do what's necessary. And I just yeah. want to get your take on that. I think that I think that's true in some cases. Of course, I live in Washington State, and so in Washington State, we always are, you know, breaking our arms, patting ourselves on the back for being leaders. Um, a lot of things that we do, it's I I talk about this all the time in Washington State. You, you will hear the word leadership related to the environment more than you will hear the word effectiveness. <laughs> um, so that's you know, again, getting back to the symbolic nature of a lot of these policies. But I do. There is no doubt that. Federal action is used um, as a hammer against states that are doing things that some people don't like, right? If you are not doing the right thing, we will force you to do what is right. Um, and that can sometimes be subtle. For instance, California, um, by mandating um, air emissions standards for cars and things like that, they say, look, you want to sell in California, you have to do what we want, knowing that... Um, it's probably easier in a lot of ways just to go to do nationally what you're doing for California rather than making, you know, bespoke cars for every state or something right. like that. So I def there is absolutely a sense that the federal government um, should force uh, the bad states to do what the good people <laughs> think is right. Connected to that is 
if the federal government is always kind of meddling in environmental issues, and I would say in many instances they actually will get into what I would think or even traditional local types of issues like zoning. Yeah. I mean, my, I would argue that, that basically if you're a state or a local government, you're like, all right, well, why are we going to create some type of additional law or address this issue? The federal government's going to kind of crowd us out right. of this. And I just, I mean, are you seeing that? Do you see that? Do you ever hear yeah. folks? Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, the, and the problem with that um, is that what we need now is innovation. If you're not solving your problems and the, and the traditional solutions are not working, you desperately need innovation. And this is not just sort of a political talking point. This is literally math. <laughs> there is an economist at University of Michigan named Scott Page who has a great book about how diversity of ideas and diversity of solutions is the best way to get to the best solution. And so what you want is you want a lot of people trying a lot of different things to find what the best, most effective outcome is. And if you preempt all of that, by saying, okay, federal government, we're going to tell you, uh, we're going to tell states um, how to do what are essentially lo you know, local things. Um, and even if they're not regulating it, they're just subsidizing it, rewarding constituencies or jurisdictions that do the right things. It undermines that innovation that is so necessary to find the right outcomes. So now let's get to and really focus on private solutions and, and innovation. And in your book, you have something called the, the alternative, or you mentioned yeah. <laughs> as the alternative. So just as in general, what is your alternative? So the alternative approach, as I said, we don't – the problem is, is what we shouldn't do is outsource environmentalism to politicians. Because when you say, well, I don't have any control, I don't have any responsibility, then you – your involvement in environmentalism is purely virtue signaling. Right? Because you can't, it's like, well, I can't solve it. So the way I'm going to show that I care about the environment is by going on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, destroying art or things like that, right? <laughs> um, because you don't feel that you have the obligation or the ability to um, do the right thing or, or change um, or be a good steward of the environment. What the alternative is, is connecting people directly to environmental outcomes. In 1970, we couldn't really do that, right? Only the federal government could address those big outfalls. That's just not true today. Now, because we have so much power, the ability to, to connect with others uh, because of smartphones and the internet is basically zero. The ability to collaborate, um, all of those, the barriers to collaboration have been eliminated. And so now what you get are people directly connecting to environmental issues. And what they care about is results. Virtue signaling is less important to them than actually getting results. And in some cases, the result simply is saving money. So you don't have to think that climate change is an existential crisis, but I say, look, if you use less electricity during peak hours, which is not only more expensive, but the most carbon intensive energy, you're gonna say, look, I don't really care about the carbon. I care about the money. That's great. Now we can do that in a way that 10 years ago we could not. And so that connecting people directly to environmental outcomes, taking power away from politicians, giving it to people, is the way that you change the focus of environmental policy from virtue signaling to results. So in your book, you talk about the problem of relying on politicians, which you're kind of getting at, and the importance of citizens. And why should I just rely on politicians? They'll, they'll do the right thing, won't they, Todd? <laughs> so what, do you, what would you uh, 
how you respond to where, that. Where am I? Am I the Heritage <laughs> Foundation? I didn't do... um, no, of course not. I mean, so in, I'll give, give you an example of my state. So I sit on the Puget Sound Salmon Recovery Council. Um, we're trying to increase salmon population. Salmon uh, were listed in the Puget Sound as threatened in 1999. We have very similar populations of salmon today that we did you know, more than 20 years ago. 2020, there was a deadline where we assessed our progress on recovering salmon and all sorts of things, and we missed almost every target. So that's just salmon. Let's take climate change. Governor Inslee, our, our governor, um, uh, is constantly talking about how he's a leader on climate change. He's in Egypt right now, um, patting himself on the back about what a, what a local leader he is. During his time as governor, CO2 emissions have gone up almost every year. And we have missed every single CO2 target that he set. In fact, he even created a web page uh, to track his success and say, okay, look, here are seven different areas of CO2 emissions that we're going to track, and we're going to manage state government too to make sure that we meet these. In 2019, when he was looking at running for president, um, running primarily based on his work on climate change, about a month before, maybe two months before he ran for president, that web page was pulled down because they were missing every single <laughs> target. So there are lots of other examples. We could go on and on about examples of where government regulation have not met the environmental goals. Um, but again, what is more important is the public image. The governor doesn't, hasn't stopped saying that he's a leader on climate change because he hasn't met any of his goals. He just got rid of the goals. That's convenient. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so another theme and an important point in your book is how does better information improve better environmental outcomes? Right. And what is the importance of incentives? And can you provide some examples? So I'll give you um, sort of the simplest example, which is, is that right now, right, I live in Washington State, um, 3,000 miles away, and I can tell you that my house is currently using 2,800 watts because it's cold where I live and the, the, the heat is on. So the reason I can tell you that exactly is, is that I have an app on my phone that is connected to something in my electrical box, which senses the electricity going in at my house a million times a second. And because it does it a million times a second, it can use artificial intelligence to tell me what appliances are using electricity in my house. And so I can see, oh, what am I using electricity for my dishwasher, for my heater, for my light bulbs, where is it? And when I first put this in, I'm like, I'm an energy geek, right? I know these things. And I looked at the amount of electricity that I was using when I turned on my kitchen lights, and I was shocked at how much it was because they were all incandescent. Um, so I went and I swapped those for LEDs, which I think provide also very good light but are much more energy efficient, and the number went down. So here I am, somebody who pays attention to these issues very closely, and yet one of these technologies that I'm talking about in my book um, gave me information that I never would have thought of. I would not have fixated on my light bulbs, but I was able to save and the light bulbs paid for themselves, I think in like five or six months just from the energy savings. So that's a, that's a very clear example of how just simply providing information can help you save electricity, save money, um, and reduce environmental impact. So one story, I don't, I'm not sure if this is in the book, but I know that you've talked about is recent developments in California with some of their electricity yeah. concerns in, in the, in kind of this California learning about the importance of texting. Yes. Um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? So a lot of the discussions that we have, a lot of the fights that we have about an um, energy policy are on the supply side. 
Do we need natural gas because you need to be able to turn on electricity when there's demand? Can you replace it with wind and solar? It's all about sort of a planner's mindset of planning for capacity, which is fine. We need that. But of course, as we know, planners don't always get it right. <laughs> and California is a perfect example of how they don't always get it right. And so this summer, they were facing energy shortfalls and blackouts, and there were some blackouts. So when they were facing the most significant blackout, state of California simply sent out a text to a large number of residential customers saying, look, we're facing a shortage. We're facing blackouts. Please conserve where you can. Very simple statement, just a text. Within 15 minutes, they had reduced electricity demand more than the amount of all of the battery power in California combined. So you think about the billions of dollars that we have spent, right, building batteries, um, and one text was more valuable than all of those batteries, essentially, at least at that moment. And it is an underappreciated way to save electricity. And those people, you know, they also had the side benefit of saving money. So um, it, rather than spending more um, to, to fulfill peak demand, you can spend basically zero and save money uh, and reduce demand and avoid those blackouts. Um, and a text is just something simple, but you can do that every day. Like the tool that I talked about, my sense, what's called a sense monitor in my house that I use every day. And, and it can tell me here's how to save energy every day. So it doesn't just have to be in those moments of crisis. It can help pe people save money every day and use artificial intelligence so that you don't have to think about it every day. Um, because nobody wants to, you know, track their cost per kilowatt hour every day. So it, it, you talk about small things. What, what do you mean by small things? Well, there's a thing called proportionality bias. And proportionality bias says that big problems have big causes, which we know sometimes that's not the case. A lot of little things can add up and sort of hit a tipping point. But it also makes us assume that big problems need big solutions. And that's not the case. You can do lots. The, the aggregated impact of lots of little beneficial acts can add up to big things. So I'll give you my favorite example, which is ocean plastic. So let's set aside climate change, which is very controversial and people have lots of feelings about, but I think everybody can agree we don't want to put more plastic, we don't want to put more garbage into the ocean. So the United States does things like ban plastic grocery bags, which is fine, but it doesn't really do very much because we don't put much plastic in the ocean. Sri Lanka, this little you know island country, um, puts about five times as much plastic into the ocean as the United States. That's where the problem comes from. It's in developing countries. So a group called Plastic Bank hired people to pick up plastic. People were able, because 93% of people in these developing countries have smartphones or cell phones, they were able to geolocate where they picked up the plastic, turn it into smart to uh, Plastic Bank. Plastic Bank pays them on their smartphone because many of these people don't have bank accounts. And then they're able to put, they have a web page where they, where they show where all of the plastic was collected. They sell that plastic to SC Johnson, who recycles it and turns it into Windex bottles. So now when you buy a Windex bottle, it says made with 100% ocean-bound plastic. Think about the technology involved there. Basically nothing more than a smartphone. Um, you know, maybe a, you know, a web page where you can see where all of that uh, plastic was picked up. But... And each act, of course, of just picking up some plastic is not very big. Using that method, they have collected more than 3.1 billion plastic bottles. 
and 140 million pounds of plastic. It's really incredible. I mean, think about just the small technology, the small efforts to collect 3.1 billion bottles. But that, there's a, you know, a lot more to do, but that's very significant and it shows the power of doing small things. Well, and also, the, you know, if there's good ideas like that, then we can be replicated elsewhere. And, Absolutely. And, and we can learn some lessons as opposed to just trying to take one uniform idea and just opposing it for everybody and assuming it's just going to work. There's no competition. There's no creativity, right. innovation, and, and learning from best practices. Right. And the low cost of the technology, because everybody has a smartphone, and the low cost of the technology means it's adaptable. Right. So that so what plastics bank is doing may work in the Philippines or Brazil or Egypt where they are, but it may not work some someplace else. But again, because the barriers to the technology are so low in terms of cost and information, they can find a different approach that works and engage that sort of innovative process where you're trying a, a large diversity of, of solutions that are uh, localized, which uh, are just more effective over the long run. Looking at a, a question I have, <laughs> we know we're talking about small things, and I think even small things can turn into big things. Um, but I'd like to get your take on um, my take, <laughs> yeah. which is yeah. that government intervention that reduces wealth and standards of living only serve to undermine our ability to address genuine environmental challenges. And, and there's a reason why the countries with the cleanest environments are the most prosperous nations. If we want to have the best environmental outcomes, the big things or the big solutions will come from enabling individuals and the private sector to address any big problems. And and as opposed to kind of pretend government solutions will only often hamper these private solutions. I think that's kind of a general theme, but I just want to see if you kind of buy into my overarching little take there on the importance of basically ensuring that the government intervention that, which I think often does reduce wealth and hurts our standard of living. And because a lot of environmental solutions that we hear are all really just don't take into account these trade-offs. Right. these costs. And mm-hmm. I think that actually undermines ultimately not only our well-being, but even the environment, the ability to uh, achieve positive environmental outcomes. Yeah. First thing I think that has to be said is we should not dismiss uh, well-being as a metric for our policies. I think sometimes we get so myopic uh, when talking about environmental issues that we just focus on just the environmental outcomes and we forget the harm that is done to people. That is really important. Uh, in the United States, in the Western world, uh, of course, but especially in developing countries. So first, I just, you know, I, I don't like sometimes these discussions because they're just about how can, narrow-mindedly, how can we achieve the environmental goal without looking at the trade-offs uh, that you pointed out? There's a great saying that I have uh, seen. There's a t-shirt that says, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. Um, and that, that really is important to keep in mind. Uh, one of my things that I tell people is that if it's not economically sustainable, it's not environmentally sustainable because people will get tired of paying very high costs um, and for energy, for a variety of other things. And they will simply say, I'm, I'm tired with this. I, 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 we can't afford this anymore. Um, we need to go a different route. So if you are narrow-minded and don't focus on the cost of things, you are undermining yourself. The other thing is, is that if you spend money on environmental solutions that don't work and you come back and say, well, 
That didn't work. We still have the problem. We need more money, <laughs> right? Now you've not only wasted money, but you've also squandered political credibility that is necessary um, to maybe do some things that do work. So you have to keep your eye um, just for moral and effectiveness reasons on um, money in the bottom line. Um, but you know, at a, at a more theoretical level, of course, the environmental Kuznets curve, um, which says that as a country grows wealthier, it starts to pollute a bit, a little bit more. But then there's a tipping point where you actually start to see pollution decline after they get wealthier. And I just ask people this, who has cleaner air and water, New York City or Beijing, right? I mean, New York City is wealthier, um, you know, has a lot bigger um, economic output than Beijing, and it's a lot cleaner. It may not be the most pristine place on the planet, <laughs> but it's a hell of a lot cleaner than Beijing. <laughs> Kind of following up on what you were talking about, I think one of the concerns in terms of measuring environmental outcomes is there's a focus on making the, the means really look like the goal. Like, so yeah. they'll, they'll talk about reductions in emissions of a particular air pollutant. And I mean, that's not to say that's not a measure, but it's a means to achieving a goal. So if you're trying to, if I spend tons of money to reduce uh, certain emissions, you might achieve the emissions, but what is the actual environmental, concrete environmental benefit of doing that? And, and the CO2 is easier because we can talk about temperature being kind of the ultimate goal, within, within, but, but let's not, right. get, we don't even have to get into there, into that. We can look at other, we can look at air pollutants like, you know, ground level ozone, particular matter, whatever. It's like, what is the concrete environmental benefit instead of just simply measuring as emissions? Right. So a really good example is you will hear a lot of times when people say, okay, we need to do this to improve air quality because kids are getting asthma. So we need to improve outdoor air quality because kids are getting asthma. Well, the number one source of asthma in children is indoor air quality. <laughs> so the question is, okay, should we spend a billion dollars on outdoor air quality, which may help, may have a smaller, relatively smaller benefit for children with asthma or to improve indoor air quality. Um, and there's a whole range of things you can do to reduce the risk of childhood asthma by improving um, indoor air quality. In, in Washington state, uh, it won't be uh, surprised to anyone that mold, <laughs> uh, given how rainy we are, is a major contributor to childhood asthma. So if you could, if you could reduce mold, if you could you know, uh, clean up the inside of houses, you would probably do more to reduce childhood asthma. But as you say, um, you know, reducing outdoor, they have fixated on, okay, we need, we need to reduce, you know, particulate matter or outdoor air quality. And asthma becomes just a tool to achieve that goal rather than saying, okay, reducing childhood asthma is the goal. Let's find the best way to do that. And, and I think that makes people cynical. And frankly, it's, it, it doesn't achieve the goal. In some areas, like in, in air quality, we've had so much success uh, for many reasons in, in lowering concentration levels of the air pollutants, as I kind of highlighted at the start of this program. And the same thing with kind of water as well, but particularly it's easily more easily measurable in uh, the air context. But to achieve kind of that even... It's easier to kind of achieve those initial benefits right. with lower costs. 
But when you are trying to get like basically blood from a stone, it costs a fortune. Correct. And you know that that to me is another critical reason. One, why you know looking for these federal types of solutions doesn't make as much sense, and also why it really, given the, the just the cost and I would argue probably the limited benefit that you're getting from it. These are types of decisions that ultimately Congress needs to, to make, especially when it comes to ambient air quality standards, as opposed to having the agency make these decisions, the EPA in particular. Right. Again, though, that I think that, that the reason that you get that is because there is a disconnect between the people who pay for it and the people who are making the decisions. Um, and again, be, when you are not you know, closely tied to the outcome when you don't have, when your incentives aren't aligned with environmental results and when you don't have the knowledge, then you start to make the decisions that you're talking about where we're going to, we're going to do everything we can. It doesn't matter what it costs. And the result is, is that you end up making bad decisions. And I can always tell when there is not a good justification for an environmental policy, when they start to say things like, well, yes, it helps air quality, or it helps reduce CO2, or it helps, you know, whatever, salmon. But think of all the jobs it will create. And, and anyway, it's just good to show leadership, right? So then they start trying to throw in all of these other things that they hope overshadow the fact that their policies really aren't very effective. Um, and when they start, you know, piling on, well, it creates jobs, and it shows that we're a leader, and, and all these sort of subjective measurements, it shows you how out of whack political decisions are with actual environmental outcomes. The more that you can say, okay, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to save salmon? Are we trying to protect this wetland? Are we trying to um, you know, increase migratory bird habitat um, when they fly over rice paddies or something like that? Then your focus is on achieving tangible goals and you don't line up, well, even though we didn't you know, get what we wanted, um, we sure all felt good. You just, the more distant people are from results, the more that you get those subjective, um, I think, kind of nonsensical and counterproductive excuses. I'm glad that you brought that up because we've just had a discussion here internally about, about some folks when they can't really defend the environmental policy, it's like, well, what would you do? And, and you know, we just have, or usually what they'll come back was, well, we got a lead. And, yeah. <laughs> and if nothing else, we're, by taking this action, we're, you know, at least we're sending a signal to others to, to and we're being the leader. And yeah. so meanwhile, while you're leading, at, while you're pushing that policy, you're winding up driving up prices that hurt disproportionate impact on the poor. You're hurting, you know, the economy. You're hurting, there's all kinds of costs and they just don't want to look at these trade-offs. Um, there, there and and that's even, just so, so critical. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. There's even a more in, in, uh, perverse incentive that it took me a long time to realize, which is that we often choose the worst policies when there is low-hanging fruit that's available. And I really was confused about why that would be. And then I started to realize that if you are a politician who cares about the environment or you want to signal that you care about the environment to special interests or others, you don't do the rational thing. Anybody can do the rational thing, right? If you say, look, we're going to spend this much and, you know, it's going to save this much money and, you know, it makes sense on a cost benefit. Great. If you want to send the strongest signal that you truly care about how committed you are to an issue, 
you do the irrational thing <laughs> because then you can say, look how serious I am. Look what a risk I'm willing to take. I'm willing to do this crazy thing because that's how important it is. We need to do crazy things. And it, and it is such a weird, and when you think about it, it's like, well, that's ridiculous. But then you think, well, actually, if your goal is to show that you care, right? Um, you know, having uh, dated my wife for a long time, I did a lot of stupid things to signal to her <laughs> how much I loved her, right? So we should be familiar with that in our personal lives. It's just that when it gets, you know, uh, done in the, in the political sector that it becomes really costly and ineffective. Um, but I see it all the time. And there is this perverse incentive not to do the rational thing, but to do the crazy thing. That's a great point. Um, about the irrational. I don't know about the dating. I'll have to think about the one. But definitely <laughs> but I, for the maybe not you, but I did a lot of irrational oh, I, things. No, definitely. I'm irrational <laughs> there too. Um, but I think it's important for when politicians are doing the irrational that we certainly bring up that the folks that are watching that from the outside are, you know, highlight. We have to remember to highlight the trade offs. Okay, you're great. You're showing how much you care about X over here. Right. But look at how much harm you're creating everywhere else. Yeah. And usually the harm is always outweighing the, you know, the right. harm is greater than the, the benefits. And it's important for us to point that out. I think it is absolutely important to point it out. But incentive, politicians are responding to the incentives they have. And you can tell them this is why it is a bad thing to do this. But if at the end of the day, they get more political rewards by doing irrational things, they will continue to do irrational things. And that is the fundamental thesis of my book, is that you need to take power away from politicians and put it into the hands of people because their incentives are aligned with environmental stewardship. They want to save money, which, has a, you know, which reduces environmental impact. And the more that you can do that, the more effective you're going to be at helping the environment. Again, conservatives have typically seen the environment as an issue that is, you know, scary because it empowers big government. But if you look at a map and you look at where the red parts of the country are, where conservatives live, that's where the nature is. Conservatives choose to live near the environment because they care about stewardship. We ought to be proud to say that. We've been nervous because we are worried about that empowering big government. But solutions, local solutions, technologies like these can make it so that conservatives say, no, we are the real environmental stewards. Your policies don't work. Ours do. All right, I'm going to throw you a curveball. Sorry. You talked about how you know, the citizens will act more rationally than the, the politicians. And I agree with that. But there are certainly folks, well, I would say on, on, on more of a big government perspective, let's just say, right. that believe don't have as great of an opinion of the, the public um, and believe that they act irrationally. They don't have enough information or we, they make the wrong decisions, really, but what they're saying is that you make, they're not making decisions that we want them to make. And I mean, it's quite honestly, if you, it's, they're really basically just saying we think you're dumb um, in, in many instances. Uh, and therefore we have to make these decisions. The technocrats have to make the decisions so I think there's actually kind of a little bit of a disconnect. I mean, I, I think many politicians, many conservatives and many people will you know, agree exactly what your point is. But I think a lot of folks just simply don't buy that that people in the public or actually 
rational. They may not think the politicians are rational either, but they just don't have a lot of faith in citizens. I talked about state governments before, but I'm not even sure they have faith in the American people. So I just want to see what you thought about that. I think there's, that's certainly true. There are a lot of people who believe that the only solutions come from technocratic experts, right? We hear this all the time. Believe the science, right? Follow the science, right? Which is just a manifestation of, you know, do what the expert technocrats say we should be doing. If you just, you know, listen to them, we'd all be in a better place. We know we have lots of examples <laughs> uh, where that's simply not the case. Look, I think I work with a lot of people on the environmental left. Um, who agree with me on a lot of these things. We have a lot of areas where we disagree, but there's a lot of issues where we agree on the environment. And I, like I said, I break people into political environmentalists um, where the politics, I think, is the driving force and environmentalism is ancillary and sincere environmentalists for whom, for whom environmentalism is the primary goal. Those folks are more likely to say, if something works, let's do it. And they may be skeptical uh, that the public can do the right thing or that market innovation can create it without some guiding hand or guiding force. But if you can show them, um, they are open to it and they will use these technologies. And, I, and the other thing is though, even if they don't change their mindset, even if they say, well, I, I like these, but they just, ultimately it's not the solution. The real solution is government, right? These are nice little things, but they don't. The fact is, is that the more power we hand to people, the less room there is for these sort of top-down approaches. And I'll give you my favorite example from Seattle. Seattle uh, basically banned Uber, um, put a cap on the number of Uber drivers in the city about a decade ago trying to put them basically into the ta taxi medallion system is basically what they just made them taxis. Two weeks later at the Seattle City Council, there were so many Uber drivers and Uber riders that they immediately undid what they did. This is Seattle, right? This is a majority socialist city council. And even they were forced to give power back to the people because once people say, look, I can do this. <laughs> I don't want you making decisions for me. Um, they won't give that power back very easily. So I think one, to answer your question, I think one, there are many people on the left who will say, look, okay, I generally think that, you know, technocratic guided approaches are better, but I'm willing to try anything if it helps. And second, where that doesn't, you know, it, once you give power to people, they don't want to give it back. And so it just, that power sort of sticks. So as we wrap up, Todd, what, what are some, a few takeaways that you like to, the listeners to, to kind of take with them? Yeah. So the first thing is, is that I, when I talk uh, with conservatives like me, I tell them, have faith and have confidence in your own values. There is a, I, like I said, I, working in environmental policy for 20 years, I talk with a lot of conservatives who are very nervous about engaging on these issues because while they themselves care very much about environmental stewardship, they are hunters, they are hikers, they go fishing, things like that. They're worried about the nexus to politics and so they don't speak loudly or in fighting back against what the left does, they sound like they don't care about the environment because they wanna undermine the, the rationalization for big government. So the first thing I tell a conservative is have the faith of your convictions. We are right, our ideas are right and are the best for the environment when applied. And, and the second message is our ideas 
market innovation um, are now the best solutions to the environment and they are more available than ever and they are solving really big problems. Again, set aside climate change, but a lot of issues that we all care about, protection of species, ocean plastic, availability of water in developing countries, all those sorts of things, where you see the biggest progress being made is in technological innovation using market forces and personal incentives. And so I think those are the two biggest takeaways for folks um, who, want to, who want to engage on the environment but are afraid to because of the political implications. So where can we get a copy of your new book, Todd? Uh, and the book, again, is called Time to Think Small, How Nimble Environmental Technologies Can Solve the Planet's Biggest Problem. So how do I get a copy? Uh, Amazon is the best place, uh, but it, uh, it is in bookstores. So call your bookstore, obviously, <laughs> if you want to get it uh, uh, quickly. But um, uh, Amazon is probably the easiest place. I, and I say that, you know, I, I'm from Seattle, so Amazon, so I have to rep, but, uh, but yes, they, they probably are the fastest way. Todd, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, I'm Darren Back, Senior Research Fellow, Environmental Policy and Regulation at the Heritage Foundation. And I want to thank all of you who are listening to the program and hope you've enjoyed this edition of the Center for Energy, Climate, and Environment's PowerCast. Please tell your family, friends, and colleagues about the PowerCast and be on the lookout for the next edition coming out in two weeks. Thank you again.